We couldn't see you, couldn't hear you, couldn't feel you. We were dead to you. You were dead to us. But because you loved us, even when we were dead in sins, you raised us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We owe it all to you, Lord, and we give you the praise forever and ever, Lord. Yours is the glory. Thrice holy God, would you speak to us through your word? For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated. You don't understand what it feels like for me to stand up here today to be with you after so many years of being apart. Uh, we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for your prayers, for your thoughts, for reading our newsletters. And it's a privilege this morning to read the Word of God with you, to be with you, to worship Him. Let's read from Mark chapter 10, 17 through 22, and I'm going to roll right into Acts chapter 13, 38. And 39. Mark chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. And as he was sitting, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have your treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Thank you, Heath. It's a privilege to have you with us, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to fellowship with you guys for a little bit. It's a joy to see God's work in their life and the fruit that has been born from their ministry and labor so far. So let's continue to pray for uh, Heath and Jessica and all of our missionaries that we support. Uh, speaking of prayer, let's take a moment and let's pray before we begin this morning and ask for God's help. Father, it is, it is, it is so weighty. Uh, what we are about to take up in Scripture. And so serious. And on the uh, cusp of this week, life is serious. Life is weighty. And so, I ask for your help and f for all of us. Come, O oh God, and guard me from fear and from self-consciousness. And grant us as a people to revel at your word. Sanctify us in the truth for your word 
is truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So produce faith, produce holiness, produce humility, bring reconciliation, bring healing. Oh, God, take these five loaves and two fish and feed us with food better than I could ever dream. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen. Amen. In March 2011, Rob Bell, the former pastor of Mars Hill Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan, exited the evangelical world with the publication of his book, Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who has ever lived. In that book, Rob Bell unequivocally revealed that he was untethered theologically from Orthodox Christianity. Let me share with you a couple of excerpts from his book. He says sarcastically or cynically, a a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world so desperately needs to hear. Well, that's interesting because Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So presumably, uh, Rob Bell thinks that the words of Christ are misguided and toxic. Either that or I guess he thinks Jesus was just joking around when he said that, right? He wasn't really being serious. So Rob Bell denies eternal damnation in order to make this unpleasant truth just sort of go away. And he goes on to say in the book, quote, when it comes to what happens when we die, we don't have any video footage. So let's just be honest and admit we're speculating because we are. Well, I think it's clear that Rob Bell has very little confidence in God's word. The scriptures, because the scriptures are very clear, and Jesus did not mince words, but Bell has chosen to ignore important scriptures, and he misrepresents the majesty and the holiness of God as he sacrifices it at the altar of, quote, love. A love that is stripped of righteousness and justice. In essence, what love wins is, is a feel-good message that all people irrespective of whether or not they have rejected Jesus in this life or not, will ultimately be saved. And I, I think all of us would love for that to be true. All of us would love to say, hey, that's that's true, that's great, but this is not what the Bible teaches. So either we have a choice to make, either we're going to stand on Scripture, or we're just going to dismiss Scripture and jettison it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And yet, universalism remains a very popular Uh, item or idea today in his book whatever happened to hell john blanchard writes these penetrating words 
He says universalism originated in the Garden of Eden when Satan brushed aside God's warning and assured Eve, you will surely not die. All the ways of hell are one-way streets. The idea that those who go there will eventually be released to join the rest of humanity in heaven has not a shred of biblical evidence. Children are sometimes told fictional adventure stories with a delightful ending, and they all lived happily ever after. We call that kind of story a fairy tale. Universalism is exactly that. It's a fairy tale. Jesus does not mince his words, as I said. Jesus says in one place in the Gospels, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. I want you to think about those words. Those words were not spoken by Augustine. Those words were not spoken by George Whitfield. Those words were not spoken by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Those words were not spoken by Jonathan Edwards. Those words were spoken by Jesus of Nazareth. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. Hell is real. It is a real place that we must be delivered from by a real man named Jesus. And we can be. God has made a way. I mean, forgiveness comes as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. But, but we don't need any more confusion today in our world. People need biblical clarity. We are starving for truth. Uh, even in America, churches are so shallow. Teaching is so poor. There is so much error and doctrinal heresy floating around. We don't need any more confusion. We need clarity, crystal clear teaching and preaching from God's word. What does God's word teach? What does it stay say? And we need the boldness to be able to stand on that and not be ashamed of it and not be afraid of it, but to boldly proclaim everything that God's word says without missing any portions, without cutting anything out, but standing on it. People need this kind of clarity. We need teachers who are willing to deal honestly with what the Bible says, to take up hard subjects like this and say, the Bible does teach hell. It does teach hard things. The truth is, love does win. But not the kind of love that Rob Bell talks about in his book. Rob Bell has no place in his theology for the wrath of God. But in Scripture, we see both the love of God and the wrath of God come together at the cross of God. In other words, if you, if you want to see God's love, look at the cross. And if you want to see God's wrath, look at the cross. The Welshman William Reese uh, penned this so well in his hymn, Here is Love. He says, On the mounts of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers Poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Isn't that amazing? I mean, on the on the wake of what we've just been through as a country, I'm sitting here thinking, man, what message is better proclaimed to our nation and our country than this right now? Than mighty rivers pouring incessant love from above heaven's peace. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss a guilty world in love. Is that not what we need? We are a guilty world. 
We are a messed up country. And what we need is the peace of God and the justice of God to take us into all of our brokenness and to kiss us and to help us. That's the kind of love that wins. And that, that means so much more than Rob Bell's conception of love. Because when you see how the love of God rescues us from the wrath of God, that makes the love of God all the more powerful. The greatest demonstration of the love of God is that it rescues us from the wrath of God so that when God saves us, He's not just saving us from sin. He's not just saving us from ourselves. He's not just saving us from hell as a concept. God is saving us from Himself. Think about that. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God, the, the mercy of God, to crush His Son in order to reconcile us to Himself. See, here's the truth is that everyone who believes in Christ and turns from himself will be reconciled to God forever. But the opposite of that is also true. Everyone who trusts in themselves and turns from God will be condemned by God forever. This is the truth that was proclaimed by Jesus and Peter and Paul and Luke and John. This is the gospel that's been preached by Christians for the last 2,000 years. But my question to us this morning is, do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? Okay, let me let me tell you a story. A couple of uh, a couple of months ago, um, I was in San Francisco, and I ended up in a conversation with a guy who was uh, a Christian Indian theologian. So that was an interesting thing because I, I have seen a few of his books. I've picked through a few of them, and, and I and I was concerned about some of the stuff that I had read, and so I was just curious how this conversation was going to go. So as we were talking. Um, this guy was was talking about this sort of this this universalism conception, and he said, you know, I, I, he said, you know, hell is is not eternal. And I said, well, what is hell then exactly in scripture? And he said, well, hell, the word just means age. And I said, so okay, so when Jesus says where the worm will not die, like, what what does he mean there? So he said, well, it's just ages upon ages. So so what does ages upon ages mean? Isn't that not an idiom for forever, ages upon ages upon ages upon age? That that means eternal. No, no, no. Hell is not eternal. Okay. So what what is your theology? He said, well, in the end, God will reconcile everybody to Himself. I said everybody. So you mean you're saying there's no exceptions? Like no exceptions? He said, nope, no exceptions. I said, so what about really hostile, sort of God-hating people who live their whole life in hostility to God and cursed God when they died, like Hitler? who clenched his fist to heaven when he died? Or what about Stalin? Or what about Genghis Khan? He said, no exceptions. All of them will be reconciled to God. I said, so even Hitler, I said, well, what about demons? He said, all, all beings, physical and spiritual, be reconciled to God because God is one and he will have to bring everybody into himself. I said, so, so you're saying even demons and all spiritual beings will be reconciled to God? He said, yeah. I said, what about Satan? He said, even Satan. I said, so, so let me get this straight. So you just told me that hell is not eternal, that everything in the universe will one day be reconciled to God, to God, including Satan, who is a son of God. And he said, that's right. That's what I'm saying. And I said, well, then I, I just need to tell you that the entirety of church history is against you and we consider you to be a heretic. And he just looked at me. And I, and I said, does that not worry you? Does that not concern you 
that you are holding a position that the entirety of church history has utterly and completely rejected. And he just stared at me. He had this troubled look on his face. And that was the end of our conversation. And that's a dominant sort of idea today. So either, either we stand with this guy and Rob Bell in claiming that all people will one day experience God's forgiveness, no matter what, or we believe that Jesus actually meant what he said and that one day everyone who did not repent and trust in Jesus will experience God's eternal wrath in hell. And if we believe that the Bible is true and that all of us will give an account for our lives, then here's the thing. We don't have time to fool around. We have a mission as the church that demands radical urgency. Here's the deal. Doctrinal universalism, as I've just been unpacking, is very dangerous. To to think that in the end everyone will be saved, that's bad enough. But functional universalism is even worse. To live your life like in the end, it doesn't even matter. To functionally live as a universalist is much worse. Because not only is it is it cancer to your soul, but it's it's an anti-Christian way to live. The, the Bible is clear that people are not inherently good and God does not forgive everyone. And so that's the objection we come to this morning. Uh, people are good is the objection and and God will forgive everyone. And so we're addressing that. And, and what what I'm saying this morning is it's actually the exact opposite. People are not inherently good, and God will not forgive everyone. And I want to show you this from Scripture. Turn to Mark chapter 10, if you haven't already. And in verse 17 here, we see that Jesus is setting out on a journey. And this man comes running up to Jesus, and he falls down on his knees before him. So there's an urgency here. And he's determined to get to Jesus. How many people do you know that are this determined to ask Jesus a question. He, he falls at Jesus' feet. And, and, and what are the questions you have of God? What are you asking? And, and what are you doing to get them answered? Are, are you seeking to have your questions answered? And I hope one of the reasons why you're here this morning is that you're eager to, to know what God expects of you and requires of you. That you're eager to know what God says to you and that you're seeking Him out. And so this man asked Jesus a very important question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. It's a fantastic question. Now, notice in asking this, he's making some assumptions about Jesus. Number one, he assumes that Jesus is a trustworthy God. Because why else would he run up to Jesus, fall on his knees and ask him this question if he didn't think Jesus was going to give him the right answer? That's the first thing. The second thing is he has a wrong assumption as well. Notice this, he says he assumes that eternal life is the result of doing something. Did you notice that language? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and isn't this classically what our culture thinks? Is, is that, you know, you go up to anybody and ask them, okay, what, what should I do in order to be saved or to inherit eternal life? And probably the, a person that you're talking to would say, well, look, just be a good person. Just try your best. Just clean up yourself. Just do whatever you can. Just, just give your best effort to God and then God will accept you. And, and that's what this man expects Jesus to say, but he's dead wrong. And that's not the direction Jesus goes. So how does Jesus answer him? Well, he does what Jesus classically does. He answers him by asking another question. He responds to him and he says, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. Did you hear that? Jesus says there's not a human being alive that's good. And the question I'm asking us this morning is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that what Jesus is saying is true? Because most people don't. Jesus said no one is good except God alone. God is good. We are not. And Jesus is going to show this man that he's not good either. You see, because we think we're good because we compare ourselves with other people. So, so I don't parent like her. I'm a better mom than she is. Look what she's doing with her kids. Or I've seen that guy work. I know what he's doing. I watch him. I know he cheats. I know this guy's cheating on his taxes. I don't do that. I, and we compare ourselves. We set this standard down here and compare ourselves with other people. When that's not the standard, God is the standard. And perfection is the standard. Therefore, in light of God's standard, none of us are good in re- any real sense of that term. It, it's funny because there is this Christian satirical uh, piece online called the Babylon Bee. And maybe some of you have read that. It's it's actually quite fascinating. There's, there's some really, really clever and good pieces on there. Uh, incidentally, this morning, I saw a piece entitled, Woman Finally Accepts the Doctrine of Total Depravity. That now that daughter is two. Here's what it says. This is, this is great. This is satire. It says, Mary Eastwood, 29, says that she struggled for years to accept the biblical teaching that human beings are inherently corrupted by sin, preferring instead to think that people are basically good. However, now that her daughter Charlotte is right in the prime of her terrible twos, Eastwood has changed her mind, fully embracing and even espousing the doctrine of total depravity. Quote, I had the hardest time coming to grips with the idea that all the people I see around me are marred by sin and without hope, but for the grace of God, the young mother told reporters. But now that Charlotte is too, who boy, that innate depravity is shining through with the brightness of a thousand suns. She says this, she says, she's like a category five hurricane with a cute face. I love her to death, but wherever she is, darkness and destruction reign. Well, that's funny because the reality is, as parents, we all know what that's like, the, the chaos the, uh, of that moment. And actually, this makes a really good point. One of the reasons why I like this Babylon Bee, it's, it's, it's satire, but it often makes a really great point. And here, it's expressing the same thing, is that we know by nature that we are messed up, right? We know that. And it doesn't take a very long life, uh, to, you don't have to live a very long life to, to really get a grip of that. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to instruct this man. And notice what he does. Notice how he does this. He wants to help him know that he's not good, so he sets him up. And he's about to take him through the law of God and demonstrate to this man that he's not kept a single one of God's commandments. And therefore, he's not good. Look what he does in verse 19. He goes to the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He takes him through six of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the second half. But clearly, this guy is clueless because he does, because after Jesus says this to him, what does he say? He says, I have kept all these commands from my youth. Come on, man. I mean, you think about this. The, not only the arrogance to say that, but the assumption behind that, I don't think he's lying. I think he really believes that he's done that. 
So I don't think he's just, I don't think he's sort of sheepishly trying to get out of this guilt that he's experiencing, just bold-faced lying to Jesus. He really thinks he's a righteous guy. And yet, here's the, here's the irony of this whole situation. I mean, deep down, Jesus is correcting him, but deep down, I think this guy's really, really uneasy. You know why I say that? Because, remember back to the beginning of the story, he ran to Jesus and fell down on his knees and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The same guy that said, I have kept all these commands from my youth. Therefore, he knows in his heart that he's busted and he needs something else. And isn't that, isn't that a mercy for some of us when we know, when we think we're so good, but then we know deep down there's a gnawing in our heart that something's out of kilter. Something is wrong. And I think this guy is uneasy. So he falls at Jesus' feet. He's not very secure. And I, and I just want to apply this to us because if you're trying to get right with God based on your, your performance, your obedience, your commandment keeping, you are going to feel insecure like this guy. And what Jesus wants us to do is, yes, fall in desperation in front of him on our knees at his feet, but not say what he said, not say I've kept all the commandments, but say the opposite, say I am not good, Jesus, and I cannot merit my salvation. So that's what Jesus does here. He tells the man in verse 21 that you've not kept the commandments, and then he gives the most sort of scathing rebuke to him, and he says this, you lack one thing. And, and this just cuts the Gordian knot. He says, you lack one thing. Go, and since you say that you've kept all the commandments, okay, how about this? I'm going to give you one more thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, this is brilliant. Jesus knew this man was rich. And he knew that money was keeping him from giving his whole life and heart to God. Money had become an idol to him. But Jesus comes to him and he promises him treasure. Notice this, the juxtaposition of treasure in heaven versus earthly treasure. And Jesus says, if you will dispense of your earthly treasure, you can have heavenly treasure. And he sets that up as a comparison. And and he says, but but here's the thing, you've got to stop worshipping money and earthly treasure, and if you do that, you can have me and all this heavenly treasure. And that's what he tells him. And so, for all of his supposed goodness, the one thing he lacked was the one thing that was necessary. He lacked supreme love for God. I mean, he said he kept all the commandments, right? He had all this money, so he didn't lack anything materially. He presumably didn't lack anything in terms of ethically because he had been keeping all these commands. But one thing he lacks, one thing he lacks is this, the one thing that's necessary. He did not love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that was his great problem. And so, didn't Jesus say this to us? He says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you love like God like that, then it's clear. Money will not, you will not love money. You will not love work. You will not love prestige. You will not love family. You will not love success. You will not love popularity. You will not love your children more than you love God. In fact, those who love God, who have Him as their treasure, will say that, God, even if I lose the very thing that is dearest to me, my spouse and my kids and my job and my health, I, I, even if I lose that, I will not curse you, God. 
I will continue to worship you because you are my treasure. God is the center of my life. God is my hope. God is my joy. Not the circumstances of my life. How hard is it for us to live that way? I mean, I struggle with that, is making Jesus my joy so that this circumstance isn't eating me alive. So it's not like we've licked this, is it, as Christians? We're we're still struggling with this same battle. But put yourself in his shoes. He's really in trouble because this guy doesn't even have Jesus as an affection of his heart. At least we love Jesus and we're trying to fight this. But this guy is unregenerate. So how how does the man respond? Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Isn't that sad? He he was disheartened. What a tragedy. Jesus offered him more money than he could ever want. He said, you will have, in fact, treasure in heaven. And think about this. The difference between treasure on earth and treasure in heaven is, is, is is that treasure in heaven will be there when you die. Treasure on earth is gone. But but this is what sin does. It clouds our judgment. See, this man thinks that following Jesus will ruin my fun. Following Jesus will give me a miserable existence. Following Jesus will make me lose all of my money and my stuff. And, and, and I won't be happy. And he's starting to hear what Jesus is saying. And he's making the following conclusion in his mind. That if I follow Jesus, that's going to introduce into my life pain and suffering and trial. And you know what? I don't want to do that. And you know what? He's actually right. Because following Jesus does introduce to your life pain and suffering and trial to a degree. He's right. He's absolutely right. But here's the thing. He's not willing to make that trade. He's not willing to do it. Jesus never promised an easy chair for us. As Paul and Barnabas said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What he received... Jesus received, you will receive in some measure. You will be persecuted. You will be unpopular. You will be hated by some and rejected by others. So sin is trapping this guy. left for money's keeping him from seeing Jesus for who he is. It's the thing. He's keeping him from seeing Jesus for who he is because he does not see that Jesus is actually a greater treasure than all of his earthly wealth. That's the problem. Sin is blinding him. So he hangs his head. He's unwilling to make this deal. He walks away. And what happens? He realized that eternal life is free, but it costs you something. That's kind of an interesting phrase. It's free, but it costs you something. You know what it costs you? Your life. You must die to yourself. You must surrender to God. And so sin makes God's promise look like death to this man. And it makes the promise of sin look like life. When really it's the exact opposite God's promise is life and sin's promise is death. In his album entitled Rehab, uh, Lecrae has a track called Killer. And there's a line in that on James 1 where he says the following about the seductive nature of sin. This is good. He says, speaking of sin personified, her feet go down to death, so don't let her consume you. Even though her heart is black, her exterior is beautiful. She'll take, she'll take your life away and strip away your joy. Pretend she's going to build you up, but she's going to destroy you. 
I should follow the word, but I guess I'd rather be murdered. <clears throat> Excuse me, I mean martyred, because I'm killing myself. My sin conceived a baby, and we're going to name her death. Wow, my, my phrase, my sin conceived a baby, and we're going to name her death. Man, is that not true? You think about that. Think about that in any sin. Think about the worst thing that you've done in your life. Did that not conceive a baby and did not it produce death in your life? I mean, think about David's sin when he sinned with Bathsheba. I was talking to PK last night and he brought up this insight that Bathsheba, when David sinned with Bathsheba, it's not like she seduced him. His own flesh lured him away. And, and look at what sin has done in your life. Is there anyone in this room right now who would be willing to stand up and say, sin has served me really well? Is there anybody in the room that would stand up right now and say, sin has produced all kinds of good fruit in my life? You know, because the worst part of your life and the deepest scars that you have and the most painful memories that you have in your head are a result of sin. Either your sin or the sin of others. And it didn't happen overnight. It crept up on you slowly. And it began to eat at you and eat at you and eat at you until ultimately it destroyed you. Which means you cannot afford to be cavalier about sin. You cannot afford to float through life. Let me say a word to our youth. I'm glad Adam shared earlier. And Adam preached this message to your folks, man. Be bold. You guys need to be be very courageous with your with your young friends. Because here's the thing, guys, a worldly current is moving down the river uh, of your life as youth. And unless you swim against that current, you will be carried downstream by it. Basically, it comes down to this. Stand up and fight with God's word or float. But if you float, you die. That's it. But if you seek God with all your heart and you stand by his grace, then you will live. You will live. But but here's the thing. Most kids can't deal with that peer pressure. The, the stream is too powerful. And once they get in there and they start having some fun and they start moving down the stream, it starts picking up speed and they can't stop it and they can't stop it and they can't stop it until they get into their late 20s and upper 30s and 40s and they have wrecked their life already. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And my, my challenge to youth is seek him now. You will not regret that. You will regret if you don't seek him now. Well, notice the, the final phrase. The man went away sorrowful. And that's just amazing. Because I thought money was supposed to make you happy. I thought riches were supposed to make you joyful. I thought that was the end all. Well, apparently it's not the end all because he said he went away sorrowful. So that's just proving Jesus' point. Why is he going away sad? I mean, he gets to keep his money. See, here's what we think. Most of the time we think, if I had lots of money and great possessions, I would be happy. And Jesus says, no, if you have Jesus, then you'll be happy. If you have treasure in heaven that will never go away, then you'll be happy. But this guy's sad, even though he has everything he wants, and there's a lesson for us in that. And you know what the lesson is? It's this. Getting what your flesh craves 
will not make you happy. It will make you sad. Getting what your flesh craves will not make you happy. Conversely, it will make you sad. Because it's a false God and it cannot satisfy you and will never fill you up. You will never be satisfied outside of satisfaction in Jesus ever. So step back and look at this man's life. Like, let's just fly over, look at his life. And let me give you a warning because what we see here is this is really scary. Is that it is possible to show interest in having eternal life. Remember the guy ran, fell in front of Jesus' feet? So it's, it's very possible to show interest in eternal life, but then walk away when you discover the cost of following Jesus. Right? Refuse the offer. So, so maybe some of you are there right now. You've been coming to church for a while. You've been investigating the claims of Christianity. We're really glad you're here. You, you want to be a part of this skeptic series. You're, you're, you're wanting to see what, how we answer these questions. And, and you've been investigating the claims of Christianity. You, and you like Jesus. Right. I mean, you, you like a lot of what you see, but you feel like it's just demanding way too much of your life. And so you hesitate. Anybody hesitating right now? Anybody in here saying, I just I'm, I'm close to Jesus, but I just, there, you know, there's just a, a thing or two. And, and I just and you're hesitating. And here's what J.C. Ryle says to you. Good feelings alone are not evidences of God's grace. But they are, in fact, dangerous if we do not act on those feelings. Passive impressions, often repeated, lose their power. Feelings without corresponding actions will eventually harden your heart. That's very insightful. What is he saying? He's saying that you can come to church over and over and over again, but if you do not do what you know you should do and give your life to Christ, eventually you will find no interest in him at all. See, what you're doing when you come to church week after week and, and, not, and choosing, choosing intentionally not to follow Christ, not to yield your heart to him, is that, listen to this, this is amazing. What you're doing when you do that is you're creating a habit of consistently rejecting Jesus. And that's becoming a habit. Your habit is now rejecting him. So don't think that you're just sort of sitting there every week passively. No, you're actively rejecting Jesus week after week, which is digging a deep hole for you and making this a very, very bad thing because it's becoming a habit. And the longer that goes, the harder your heart will get until eventually you walk away from God for the last time. And there will come a point, and I say this to you prophetically, there will come a point when you're 18 or 28 or 32 or 40 and you walk away from Jesus for the last time and you are done with this. You're done with this. You're done with a church. You're done with Christians. You're done with a Bible. You're done with all this Christian junk. You're just done with it. And you know what? When, you're, when you reach that point, God very well may be done with you. And that's the real alarming fact. Listen, most people die the way they lived. And what I mean by that is that there are very few people who on their deathbeds genuinely cry out to God for mercy and receive it. Very few people. Everybody likes to think, oh, well, you know, when I get to that moment, then I'll, I'll, I'll get right with God. But most people who reject God in this life actually curse him when they die. Their heart gets harder and harder so that when they die, far from sort of reconciling to God, they curse God to his face 
when they die. I mean, this happens all the time. So why do you think you'll be any different? I plead with you not to do that. And here's the amazing thing. You can get right with God right now in that seat. There's nothing preventing you from just, why don't you just do that? Why does somebody in here get down on their knees right now and say, I'm not embarrassed of this. I'm going to seek Jesus Christ with my heart and my life right now. You just get down. And you confess your sin and you say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. But here's what Satan does. Don't do that. You look like a fool in front of all those people. Hey, listen, listen. Just who cares what anybody thinks? Here's the only thing that matters. That you get right with God. Well, here's the question that's still on the table. Okay, in light of all this. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? And, And I see three things according to this text. All right, number one. You must give up any idea that you can earn it. Is that clear? Has that been clear? Hopefully that, that's, that's obvious to you. You must give up any idea that you can actually earn this. Three reasons why you can't earn it, okay? Number one um, is that God's standard is perfection. Okay, so unless you can say that I've already been perfect, you've already failed out of the gate. It's over. Okay, so you're already in desperate need of Jesus because you've already failed. Okay, so it's not like you can make up for lost time. It's not like you can go back and say, okay, well, all the old stuff that I've done, all the other sin, from this point on, I can live a perfect life. It's too late. You're already stained. So you already desperately need Jesus. You've already disqualified yourself. You've already failed. How many sins did it take for Adam before God removed him from his presence in the garden? How many? One. One. Adam. One. Number two, here's another reason why you can't earn eternal life, is that if you could earn it, Jesus' death would have been unnecessary. And God didn't waste the blood of his son. Why why would God crush his son and watch him suffer if you could earn it? Don't you think God would have created another way before slaughtering his own son, his own dearly beloved son on the cross, if there was any other way? Don't you think he would do that so that when you when you stand in front of God and you think, I'm a good person, God will accept me, I don't need Jesus, that is absolutely that blasphemous to the Son of God. He crushed, and it crushes the heart of the Father. He crushed his son. So how could we possibly say, that I can earn this. He would not have done this, gone to this extent if it was not absolutely necessary. Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead so that you can live. And third, you can't earn it. Otherwise, God will not be glorified. And God is for his glory. God does the saving so that he can show his greatness. The reason God saves the way he does is to show the greatness of his character. That's why he saves the way he does, and it's why he saves the people that he does. Paul said in 1 Timothy, I just absolutely love this, I receive mercy for this reason, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life, so that... Christ might display his perfect patience. Think about that. This is a guy who murdered people. 
This is a guy who hated the church. This is a guy who hated God's people. And he says, I receive mercy because I want you to know that even a guy like me can be saved, which means there's hope for you. And God is demonstrating his patience. But the God side of this is God is saying, I'm making a trophy out of Paul because I want to show you how great I am. How great I am. God knocks Paul off his horse and he wants to show the world that he saves murderers, that he saves them in a way that, that makes him a great savior. And that the greater the sin is, the greater the savior shows himself to be. And that's why he saves all kinds of criminals and rebels and druggies and junkies and prostitutes and, and, and self-righteous people like you and me who think we're too good. That's why he comes and he shows himself such a great savior. When he does those things. So that's the first thing. If you want eternal life, you must give up on the idea that you can earn it. Number two, how do you inherit eternal life? Number two, you must realize that you are not good. You are not good. Now, this is not the only text in the Bible that teaches this. In fact, Romans 3.10 says there is no one who does good. No, not one. I mean, how much clearer can we be? Psalm 143 verse 2 says, No one living is righteous before you, God. No one. I love this. Tim Keller says that if God wiped out all the sources of evil in the world, we would no longer be here because the evil is inside us. See, good people don't go to heaven. Bad people who are saved by the goodness of Jesus go to heaven. You're not saved because you're a good person, but because Jesus was a good person for you. In Luke 18, so we have these two men, and the first one says, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men. And God says to that guy, he went home condemned. And then this other guy says to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that man goes home saved. Notice that God does not forgive everyone. When Paul is preaching at Antioch of Pisidia, he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brethren, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. What's the condition of forgiveness? So the, the objection was, and God forgives everyone, right? Well, well, what's the condition of forgiveness? The answer is, yes, God forgives everyone who's in Jesus. God forgives everyone who trusts in him, who has faith in his son. Faith is the condition, which means God does forgive everyone, but he gives, only forgives everyone who's in Jesus. God will be for you. Here, here's the thing. God will be for you. All that you need to get to heaven if you will trust him to be that for you. That's the, that's the issue. God has done the work in the person of Jesus that is fully acceptable to him. And all that he's asking is that you trust that provision. He will be all that you need for, for to get in. You just have to trust the provision. You just have to go to God and say, God, can, can your goodness be mine? God, God, since I know that you are alone are the only one that is good, can you apply your goodness to me? Can you be good for me, God? Can you do that? Can you step in my place? And the answer is yes. That's the answer of the gospel. And, 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 and I was just thinking about that song, Good, Good Father. He's a good, good father. And in that song, he, he says, the lyrics say, I am loved by you. And then, and then there's this lyric that says, 
I hear the tender whisper of love that tells me that you that I am that you are pleased with me. You're pleased with me and that I am never alone. And I was just thinking about how powerful that is. Because the only way God can say that He's pleased with me is through Jesus. There's no way I can stand before God and God be pleased with me. Not a chance. But in Jesus, it is remarkable that right now, at this moment, God says to me, I am pleased with you, son. Because Jesus is clothing me. It's just, the gospel is so remarkable. And finally, what must you do to inherit eternal life? Number three, you must turn away from your sin and follow Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure. Because that's the thing. You've got to jettison. You've got to be willing to let go of everything else. And Jesus has to be it. That's what Jesus required of this man in Mark 10. Now, now that doesn't mean that you have to go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. But it does mean that you have to sell out for God in your heart. In your heart. That you say, God, I will follow you wherever you go. God must become to you more than anything. Matthew 13, 44 makes this so poignant. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. There it is, treasure. Hidden in a field which a man found, and he hid again. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And that's what you have to do. See, a Christian says, I found a treasure in Jesus, and I'm willing to let everything go. He is everything I want. He's everything I need. He's everything that I have. I will trust him with all my heart. Everything else can go. And I I pray that that's your response this morning. I mean, for those who have been coming here for weeks and months and have never done that, hear me. Here's the thing. If you humble yourself and say, God, I am not good, God will give you grace. But if you say, God, I am good enough, then God will say, I will not have you until you have me. You, you have to be done with yourself before God will take you for himself. And the, at the heart of Christianity is this idea of substitution. In my place condemned he stood so if you reject the substitutionary offer that god is giving you in his son you were just flat out rejecting god and therefore god says if you won't have my son you can't have me this is that simple and so the, I, I love this in the, the this idea of substitution and you think about it i don't know how many of you love to read novels and things of that nature or watch powerful emotional movies but the the stories that always move us the most are the ones where someone faces this irreversible loss or death in order to bring someone else life. There's just such moving stories. Uh, Charles Dickens, in his, in, his, in his great novel, A Tale of Two Cities, has such a story. And Charles, in the story, there's two figures, Charles and Sidney. And they're two men that look really much, pretty much the same. They look, they're almost like twins. They look very, very, very close to each other. And they both love, happen to love the same woman, Lucy. And Lucy chooses to marry Charles. And they end up having a child together. Well, later in the story, Charles is arrested and he's sentenced to death by execution, actually by the guillotine. And at the end of the novel, Sidney visits Charles in prison the night before he's executed. And he actually offers to exchange places with Charles. And Charles refuses so Sidney has him drugged and smuggled away so that he could take Charles' place in prison because they look the same. And Charles ends up escaping with his wife and his kid. 
and Sidney takes his place. And this woman comes up to him who's also sentenced to death. And she thinks he's Charles. And she says, when she realizes it's not him, her eyes widen. And, and she says, are you dying for him? And Sidney responds, yes, and for his wife and son. Hush. And he looks at her. And, and stories like that are just, they're emotionally affecting. Because you realize that, that this is a significant moment. But the gospel is better than this. Because the gospel is not just moving a moving fictional story about someone else. It's a true story about us. We're actually in it. We are actually characters in this real story. And Jesus has actually taken our place. This is historical fact. And when you realize that, it changes you. It changes you. See, this is what conversion is. When you come to see through the eyes of faith that this actually happened. When you realize that Jesus had to die for you, it humbles you out of your pride. And when you realize that Jesus was glad to die for you, it overcomes your resistance. And when that happens inside of your heart, God is giving you faith. And that is what we call conversion. And I hope that that's happening for somebody right now. That you realize for the first time in your life that Jesus stood in my place and took my punishment that I deserved. You can have that. The only thing you need to get it is to turn from yourself and embrace Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure. Why would you not do that? Do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is just so clarifying to us. And in a world where there's so much confusion doctrinally, we pray that you would bring powerful, powerful truth to us as your people so that we can stand on that truth and herald it to the world around us that so desperately needs to hear this. The free offer of the gospel is extended. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would send yourself into this congregation, into these people, and that you would regenerate open eyes. Let the blind see. Let the deaf hear. And may they come to life and embrace you savingly. And for the rest of us who do love you, God, that we would just just be reinvigorated this morning and freshly affected by the gospel that has transformed us from the inside out. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.